0: Thank you for joining me on the Vigilance Press podcast. My name is James Dossie. I'm the owner and publisher of Vigilance Press. And this week we released... um, Well, over the past couple of weeks it's been kind of a staggered release. But we have finally made available uh, Darren Drader's new novel, which is... uh, Legacy of Ruin. It's a tie-in to our Nuclear Sunset line of role-playing game products. Uh, and uh, it is now available through Amazon's Kindle program. You can buy it on, on Amazon. You can find it on, uh, as a print on demand through Amazon or through CreateSpace. If you want to find those links, you can check them out on the Vigilance Press website. That's www.vigilancepress.com. And uh, today's guest has something to do with that. That this uh, I'd like you to welcome Darren Drader, the author. Darren, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. Good to hear you. So, Darren, we've been working on this project for a little while. Um, and uh, it was actually one of the first projects that someone pitched me when I took over Vigilance Press. You had already started working on the, the source book, but... <laughs> Um but you you wanted to you pitched me the idea of doing a tie-in novel. How did that come about?
1: Well, um, I've always wanted to do a post-apocalyptic novel. Um, you know, I mean, I've kind of been transitioning away from role-playing games for a while and into fiction. and the post the post-apocalyptic genre has always been very interesting to me. you know, everything from Mad Max and The Road Warrior and um, I, I mean just too many different movies to count, but they're really, there's some books out there but not not really that much you know um gamma world is a role-playing game i love and i think now watsi's released one maybe two novels that tie into that um so i think that you know there's this there's this whole um idea where uh, from a literary sense, the you know post-apocalyptic fiction tends to be more um, survival-based, but then there's also you know in in movies um, there tends to be more of a um, heroic bent to it, and I feel like there's kind of a an opportunity there to marry the two in a way that really hasn't been done a whole lot before. And that's kind of what I wanted to do with this, was to do kind of this um, post-apocalyptic um, heroic fiction that ties in with the setting that, with, that uh, Charles Rice and I have been developing.
0: Very cool. Now, to s- step back a little bit from the specific questions, I want to actually introduce you to our audience a little bit and talk to you about your background. You did mention that you've been working in, in games and gaming. Uh, how long have you been a gamer? How long have you been interested in role-playing games?
1: I believe that gaming goes back to 1984, when one of my best friends introduced me to the red box of Dungeons & Dragons.
0: Ah, cool,
1: cool. And uh, that pretty much made a huge impact on my life, and, you know, because I've gotten into it professionally and uh, have had a gaming group more or less steadily ever since then. So... Um, <clears throat> you know so it, it's definitely something that uh it goes back decades
0: yeah yeah i know the feeling i was i was uh my, my dad bought me the original uh blue box i guess the 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 one before the red box and mm-hmm. uh that was back in the 70s so yeah um yeah. it's been it's been a while um so, actually, we just had a, a D&D podcast earlier this week. If anybody wants to dial back an episode, they can check that out after you've listened to this one. Um, Rodney Thompson from the new Dungeons & Dragons designer crew was on with me, um, which was really exciting for me. But uh, getting back to you, um, what what professional gaming pro- projects have you been a part of?
1: Well, um, it's... It's kind of funny that you mentioned Dungeons and Dragons because uh, back around t- 2000, um, I was I was basically um, the the company that I worked for um, selling mattresses of all things had gone out of business, and uh, I actually it was just more of a hostile takeover. But anyway, I found myself out of work, so at that time I had the time to start thinking. You know, what do I want to do with my life? Well. I wanted to, as I was living in Seattle at the time, or close to Seattle, so I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to work for Wizards of the Coast, and I wanted to write for Dungeons and Dragons, and I wanted to get my writing career off the ground because I intended to be a writer ever since I was a teenager, and that's really why I went to school. Um, so anyway, uh, I I ended up through some various connections of mine finding out that. Um, it basically how to get into Wizards of the Coast, you know, kind of the, the agency that they use to uh, bring temps on board. <laughs> and uh, so I was working for them in their customer service uh, on one end, and then I was also working with uh, RPG R&D um, as a freelancer. And so I did some products for Dungeons and Dragons, like the uh, third, 3.5 edition Book of Exalted Deeds, uh, a couple of Forgotten Realms books, or Serpent Kingdoms, and uh, uh, Mysteries of the Moon Sea, and then of course I did D20 Apocalypse. Um, also on that one was uh, Owen Casey Stevens and Eric Cagle. Um, in addition to that, I also worked with a lot of third-party publishers like Bastion Press and Mongoose, and um, Mongoose I did some articles for, uh, for the Babylon 5 RPG. And um, and uh, and various others. So I've kind of been kicking around the role playing game industry since about 2000. Um, that kind of came to a, a little bit of a, a, a halt in 2010 when I took my job at 38 Studios, which of course uh, exploded in this fiery. Public, nasty way. But <laughs> so I,
0: I'm, yeah, uh, I know, I'm now
1: working in an unrelated field, um, but still definitely writing uh, when I'm not there.
0: But let, let me actually um, touch on that, if if you don't mind. Um, I don't want I, to. I don't want to talk about anything. You're contractually
1: obligated. To oh no, I'm that. not contractually obligated to anything regarding <laughs> that place at this point. So. Uh, Away.
0: <laughs> so I mean, you were, uh, for people who don't know what Thirty Eight Studios was, you were working on a um, an online MMO that was a tie into a, a game that did get released, The Kingdoms of Amalur, mm-hmm. um, our Kingdom of Amalur, um, which I actually, I actually, the, the the game that got released, I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. um, and I really enjoyed the setting, and it was a, it was actually, co- the setting was co-created by um, a pretty well-known author. Who was that?
1: uh, that would be Ari Salvatore.
0: Did you get to work with him specifically or, I mean, did you ever get to, uh, directly?
1: We got to hang out a little bit, um, which was cool because he's actually always been one of my favorite authors. Um, you know, he, he would come to the office periodically and, you know, he'd discuss various things relating to, um, story. Um, and, you know, kind of where the ideas behind that setting came from. And, um, you know, we we would also talk about things like uh, you know dark elves and uh, a moon falling on Chewbacca and things like
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, that must have that must have been uh, you know until until the uh, the bottom dropped out of the the company. That must have been a really cool uh, job to be working on.
1: It, it was pretty cool, and actually um, I got to work with two of Salvatore's sons, too. So, you know, Gino Salvatore was working in my department. We were both in the, the story group.
0: Nice. Now, the uh, the game that you were working on was a tie-in to this other game, but it was like, it was an MMO, right?
1: Yeah, well, actually, uh, the other game was a tie-in to the MMO that we were working on.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> um, and I know that, that sounds a little bit backwards, but um the main thing that we are working on was this this MMO and then the other one was like a prequel by something like 10,000 years or or something you know kind of ridiculous like that and it was um an excellent game you know that was developed by a different studio that was a studio in baltimore um we were working in providence and uh You know, the the MMO was to be the um, the main game, you know, the main Amalur game, and then there were going to be various things that that tied into that. But obviously, that game never got released, and so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So it's got a lot of fun. It's kind of interesting. A lot of people, when they think about uh, computer games, they think in terms of all the graphics and all the programming that goes into them, and the game design. You were working on the writing end of things. Uh, how, many, yes. how many writers was, were on that project?
1: Uh, toward the end of it, we had, I think, about six. Mm-hmm. And that didn't count the people who were kind of um, over our heads, uh, who kind of, um, uh, the original writers who, who had moved into supervisory positions. Mm-hmm. And there were at least a couple more there, too.
0: So there, there's there's quite a bit of writing to do on a project like that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, you've got uh, you've got writing uh, everything from the backstory, um, where you've got a detailed you know history, and um, you know where these different groups and races came from, and what they're known for, and how they interact with others, and all this stuff. Um, it really is not at all dissimilar from developing a, um, a campaign setting for a tabletop RPG. And then from there, then, you know, there's also the writing where you're working with the um, the level designers and, you know, you need to come up with story ideas, what's going on in a certain zone, as, you know, at the time that this game is set and um, what storylines are, are driving the action and, you know, different NPC that show up in the game and what their motivations are and that type of thing. Um, the way that it kind of worked through that phase is that we, we really um, had an equal stake in it with the, um, you know, they're not exactly programmers, or they're level designers, but, you know, a story guys were just as important to the process as the level designers. And then you go a step beyond that and then there's dialogue and, um you know, obviously you get into the levels that have been designed and you have to give each of these characters a unique voice and have them, you know, give this information that, to the player that, uh, that they need to give uh, to drive the story along. Um, and then on top of all that, there's also combat call-outs, which is where you're in a fight and somebody's like, you know, attack or, you know, whatever. And there's like, thousands upon thousands of those that you have to do. So yeah, that, there's so, a lot. Those,
0: those can be some of the most memorable lines in a game, actually, because you hear them so many times. I mean, I you know I, I still. Go ahead. Go for the eyes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Go for the eyes. Blood makes the grass grow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> most most people that I know who played video games during that time period know those references. So um but yeah it's it's a uh, it's 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 a lot of work and and it's got to be um you know it's it's always frustrating when a project that you work on doesn't wind up seeing the light of day um but uh that's one of those games that i was very much looking forward to not only because you know i knew people who were working on it but it was just it sounded like such a cool setting
1: yeah, yeah it was a very cool setting um you know, and it is kind of tragic that it's ne- it never is going to see the light of day. Uh, the latest on that is that Rhode island ha- the state of Rhode Island is one of the major investors in the game. Um they put something like sixty million into it. <laughs> wow. um, yeah, uh, may not have been the smartest investment uh, smartest public investment, but you know that's that's water under the bridge. So they now own the game. <laughs> you know the game and all the development that we did for it. And they actually tried to auction it off a while ago, and they were going to start the bidding at a million dollars. And they had representatives from various video game companies there, and it did not go. So hmm. the state owns this piece of software, or a partially completed piece of software, that will most likely never see the light of day.
0: Wow. That's such a bizarre... <laughs>
1: it really kind of is. And honestly, it's ending. still in the news over here every day. You'll see it in the newspapers. You'll hear it. Um, you'll hear it uh, on on the nightly news. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous because I mean the, the people of Rhode Island are rightly upset that their tax dollars went to waste on this thing, that and they're now on the hook for that money.
0: Yeah, that is pretty crazy. Um, I keep. Uh, I, th- I think we just heard Mad Max drive by your house there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Uh, Getting back to the good news. Um, speaking of projects that, that were in the dark for a while, um, you've now started working on novels. You know, focusing on your novels uh, a lot more often. Um, Legacy of Ruin is obviously not your first time up to bat. Uh, what what other what other books would people might might people know from you? And um, we'll talk about the monumental work groups in a minute.
1: Yeah, um, so Legacy of Ruin was actually the second one written. The first one's called Echoes of Olympus, and that one is, um, it kind of, it's it's alternate history, uh, ancient Greece. Um, It kind of asks the question, what would have happened if the Peloponnesian War had never been fought? Um, Because the Peloponnesian War is really what, Brought Athens low, and then shortly after that, they were conquered by um, King Philip of Macedonia, and, and uh, you know later Alexander the Great, you know, um, went on this campaign against the Persians and completely mm-hmm. changed, you know, the, everything. So um, it was—it's not it's to kind of ask that question. You know, what would happen if um, if the Peloponnesian War had never been fought? First of all. And second of all, if mythology were true, and all of these fantasy tropes that we kind of associate with uh, medieval fantasy um, are also a part of that setting. So what you're going to find is a little bit of politics, a lot of adventure. You know, the main character, um, Heliodas. He's a uh, he's one of the sons of Zeus. He he doesn't have enormous powers. Supernatural powers, but he is certainly a heroic figure. Um, and uh, that that one's actually the first part of uh, an intended uh, trilogy. And the second book, I'm actually about midway through, and I'm going to get around to finishing the second half of that book just as soon as I'm done writing the um, the book that I'm uh, contractually obligated to for um, Interface Zero. So ah uh, yes,
0: you were part of that Kickstarter project, weren't you?
1: I was. Yeah, excellent. I was, and uh, I'm finally getting getting around to getting that book outlined and getting that one uh, written. Um, so in between all that, um, in between uh, uh, Echoes and uh, Legacy of Ruin, um, there was also a series of. Of novellas, which tied together to kind of form a story, and I had self-published those. I'd released them individually, um, and uh, yeah, and they did all right, really. But uh, I ended up talking to Hal Greenberg recently about mm-hmm. kind of packaging those together and re-releasing those. So um, I'm counting that as uh, one of my novels, and that should be out shortly. Um, I would say probably within the next month or two. Excellent. Uh, and then there's one other novel to kind of touch on briefly, which is a novel that ties into the Traveler role-playing game. Ah. I've been working with Phil Athens on that. Phil Athens, of course, being the guy who, uh, for many years, was working with uh, Wizards of the Coast in their novels division.
0: Very cool. So you are definitely hanging out with some cool cats there and working some neat projects. Um, yeah. So, so speaking of... of folks that you're you're connected with um, on the uh, on our on our book the uh, legacy of ruin that we we've just released um, plug 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 um, the there is a logo on there um, most people might not even notice it but it's it's a it's a, um, it's a it looks like a series of of columns and and it says monumental works group mm-hmm. who who is that and um, and why are they on my book
1: <laughs> uh the monumental works group um basically the idea came from it was, it was about 2011 and i've got all these writer friends you know writers tend to collect writer friends it just kind of works that way mm-hmm. i've got all these writer friends and a lot of them are people who have been in the uh the role-playing game industry for a long time and are working on fiction. And many of them were self-publishing. Some of them were publishing through um, through other publishers. But the idea is that um, you know we kind of wanted to create a group where um, where number one we could bounce ideas off each other and help each other out um, because you know honestly making the transition from the role playing game industry to uh, fiction isn't the easiest thing in the world. You know, um, as a matter of fact, I would say that. Um, you know, you go to an online forum and nobody's ever heard of you before, and you say, "Hey, I've got this new novel out," and uh, people will act like somebody just, you know, ripped one in the room and they, you know, <laughs> avoid it. Um, so we wanted to have a group where, you know, we were, you know, we we're we we're basically trying to help each other in terms of advancing our careers, um, running ideas past each other in terms of, you know, creatively and, um, you know. What works for story, what doesn't work. Um, we've offered editing services to each other, um, that type of thing. And then the other thing that we wanted to do is, on the uh, the public side, um, we wanted to have uh, a logo that kind of represents us, so that um, and not everybody uses. The logo, honestly, um, like Scott Fitzgerald Gray, who's you know definitely been one of our strongest members since uh, the beginning. He doesn't actually even use the logo, um, but uh, the idea is that we kind of want people to be aware of us as a group, and um, uh, it gives us an opportunity to kind of promote each other and um, provides a reason for why we're promoting each other. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like yeah, we hang out together. That's why we're going to be excited about. You know, different books that uh, that we're releasing.
0: Very cool. So it's it's essentially like, uh, you know, the the, the world's most uh, self-starting
1: fan club, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> self-starting fan club. Uh, I guess that's one way of putting it. Um, and I, you actually asked who was in it, and I I should definitely um, mention them. Um, yes. We've got Clinton J. Boomer who did the whole behind midnight and a ton of work for uh, Paizo and various other RPG publishers uh... Scott Fitzgerald Gray who has um, self-published a lot of different novels um, and has also written for Dungeons Dragons um... we've got Colin McComb who is now working for uh... Oh, what is the name of that video game company, they're the ones who kick-started the um, uh, a couple of video games um, one of those being the new Torment game um, oh
0: oh 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 oh! Um, t- the Tides of Numenera game um, yes that's the other one hang on a second
1: and that's actually the one where he's the lead um, the, the, the lead writer on that game
0: In, in Exile
1: In Exile that's yes. the one um, so he's he's with us uh, Phil Athens, who I'd mentioned previously, he's uh, he's with us. Um, Eric Scott Debye is actually our latest um, new member. Um, uh, a very old good friend of mine, uh, Daniel Ryder, I went to college with him, um, he's with us. Uh, uh, Tora Cuttrell, um who used to work at Wizards of the Coast as an editor. Um, Darren Pierce, who has worked on the Doctor Who role-playing game and has done a lot of publishing uh, through uh, Dark Quest Books, um, and and there's a lot more. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I I have a list. I don't have that list in front of me.
0: <laughs> oh, well, is there is there a website someone can go to for the Monumental Works Group and check out who's the, involved?
1: The best place to go to would be to go to Facebook and go and uh, do a search for Monumental Works Group. There
0: you go. Okay. So. Um you know, it's it's kind of interesting. You drop a lot of you know authors' names, and a lot of a lot of those authors are also involved in different role-playing game projects. It, it's it's one of the topics that's popped up several times over our podcasts, where people start to realize just how interconnected um, this industry is. So many people, um, you know, for example, uh, Rodney Thompson was talking about how he uh, built his initial career as a um, Game designer, mm-hmm. working on on different projects for different companies, uh, mostly through the uh, the OGL license works, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know he'd been working with Green Ronin and, and other folks, and and of course I've done some work from for Green Ronin, and and uh, now I'm being, you know publishing stuff for Evil, you know the Evil Hat role playing game and and other role playing games as well as the open game license stuff that's out there for some of the old school role playing games which Mm -hmm. brings us around to mutant future and um you know the pacific northwest source book which we are currently in art and production on so um we'll talk to you uh what is mutant future and uh why should people care
1: Okay. Well, I'm sure that uh, people have heard of retro clones. Um, these are new games that kind of have uh, borrowed old school um, game mechanics, and uh, you know, to, to create new new products that kind of um, kind of create the the feel of you know, kind of the. Original, um, the original role playing games that, that were out there. Uh, Mutant Future is definitely a retro clone. Um, it's the same rule set as um, as Labyrinth Lord. Same company that publishes Lab- Labyrinth Lord. It's called Goblinoid Games. And the thing about Mutant Future is they're not actually. I mean, obviously, Gamma Worlds their inspiration. You know, nobody's nobody's arguing that. Um, But they're not actually making a clone of Gamma World. They're actually taking kind of the ideas behind Gamma World and um, the rules of Dungeons & Dragons and putting the two together in a way that's very cool. (laughs) And the game is a lot of fun. Um, So that's kind of... uh, And as far as as I go as a gamer, um, you know, obviously I've designed for... uh, D and D 3.5. I've designed for Traveller. I've designed for um, Savage Worlds. I'm kind of more recently. I'm kind of getting back to the uh, you know the old school Renaissance stuff. I, I kind of enjoy a little bit more of a simple game that plays faster um, because as a storyteller, it um, it allows me to tell more story.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You
1: know, basically, is what it boils down to.
0: I think the phrase that uh, most of the designers I talk to like to use is, the rules get out of the way.
1: Exactly. That's exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, you know, the idea behind uh, Nuclear Sunset was, you know, you can use a setting with with any post-apocalyptic game, any rules set out there. We try to keep it fairly rules-light. Um, but the one that we're kind of designing it for is Mutant Future.
0: Mm-hmm. And, um, the, uh, the nuclear sunset line. Now uh, the first book, um, that we we released, um, covered uh, a good section of the map of the United States, but mm-hmm. the uh, Southwest. I believe that. Yeah. The Southwest. That was, was that by Chuck Rice? <laughs> yes, it was. Yes. And, um, so that's actually out there now if, if anybody wants to look that up, but, um, and that one had a really cool cover also by, uh, um, John, right? It was John Gibbons. Uh, honestly, I couldn't tell you that one. Um, okay. I'll have to look give, that up. I think it was John. You'd be a better
1: source up than I would.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, but uh, I know he did the logo for us, and um, because I had to go to him to get the original source file for the logo, so we could uh, put that on the novel. But um, yeah, there's some there's some really cool ideas in there, and then Darren. Uh, was already working. I mean you were already working on uh, the the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. when I took when I took over Vigilance, and that's when you proposed the idea of the tie-in novel. So, what is the Pacific Northwest in terms of of the setting? I mean, um, we we can talk a little bit about the uh, the kind of different factions that are in play, and you know the the history of the setting. I mean, what triggered the apocalypse? Or is that is that left agnostic? Do people not necessarily need to know? Uh,
1: I don't think we've ever gone too deeply into it. It was a nuclear war. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't really need to know a whole lot more than than that. Um, most likely, it was between the United States and Russia, but there there might have been some other factions involved. Um, it's definitely set at one at some point that is um, in the future from where we're at now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you'd be able to see this from the various technology that crops up. Um, that uh, you know, we're, every once in a while, you'll, the characters will run across stuff that is um, that is definitely not not things that are available today. <laughs> um, right. So we don't really we don't go too much into the war that that caused you know the downfall of civilization. Um, but uh, that that's kind of the. Uh, the basic starting point is there there was a nuclear war at one point
0: mm-hmm. and um i there there the pacific northwest um obviously is special to you because you lived there yes i was born and raised there yeah so you you actually have a lot of um personal investments in some of the in some of the uh, um locations that you've you've uh Dropped into that setting. It was kind of funny, you know. It, for the most part, you you were just kind of nodding and smiling at all the artwork, but every now and then you'd be like, "We well, got to do this really specific thing here."
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, um, one of the things that, uh, that you'll see in both the novel and um, the Pacific Northwest setting book is at Uni.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's my hometown. <laughs> it's uh, it's a town of about twenty six thousand people. It's where the Washington State University um, is is located, and <clears throat> this is this is actually not the first time I've played around with that. Um, I did something for uh, Gamma World. Um, I think it was fourth edition. It was the alternative version. Kind of put something together, put it made it into a PDF myself, and put it up online. You know, I mean that was that was. A long time ago. Uh, more recently, there's um, when I worked on D20 Apocalypse. I revisited uh, revisited uh, my hometown again, and it just made sense to do that again um, for uh, Nuclear Sunset. Um. So yeah, so so that's there, and I wanted to make sure that was a, an important location in mm-hmm. in the setting, um, and. and you know, frankly, it, it's an important location within the state, so it's not like I was just taking some pot out in town, out in the middle. It's, <laughs> it's important, <laughs> you know. It, it's not quite how it worked, but
0: okay. So, um, one one of the the interesting things that that drives the novel um, through the course of the novel is all of the the different factions that kind of put pressure on the story. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell us a little bit about the factions of the Pacific Northwest in in, in the uh, nuclear sunset setting
1: um, yeah so you've got a few factions well let's let's back up a step sure. um, in each of the regions of the United States are going to be very different from each other and that was one of the things that um, you know that Chuck and I talked about when we were um, establishing this um, the Southwest was meant to be kind of you know, um, you know, very Western. You know, kind of, it, it, we wanted it to have Western influence, you know, mm-hmm. um, cowboy hats and, and cowboy boots and gunslingers and things like that. Um, the Pacific Northwest is an area that still has a certain amount of um, pre war civilization. Well, not exactly civilization, but resources that still exist. Mm-hmm. It, it's not completely, you know, survival-driven here. And so because of that, there's various groups that have kind of risen um, and are trying to assert control over the area. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's it's kind of their goal to unite this uh, this region under themselves.
0: So it's a bit more political
1: in the landscape. It is a little bit more political in the landscape, um, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, some of these groups, you've got the Fort Lewis Division, which is, you know, Fort Lewis is a major military be- military base on, um, in western Washington. Um, they, you know, after the war, they kind of became their own political entity, and they're definitely very much um, of, a, uh, of an army-type, you know, military organization. So they kind of go out and uh, they take territory. Um, Okay. Um, you've got the samurai. The samurai are basically a group of uh, of people who um, they might have been, you know, street punks at one point in time. But uh, they they came across old samurai movies. You know, a lot of old um, old stuff from you know from the twentieth century and twenty first century which kind of glorified them and they, they decided that they were going to have their own organization of samurai so they've got their daimyo that they serve and they, they put this, uh, this samurai armor together <laughs> um, out of junk basically and, um, and so again they're another one of those groups that are trying to impose impose this um, impose order
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: on, on the area uh, there's a silicone syndicate which is a group of basically robots um, you know they're self-aware, they're self-governing. Um,
0: I have to say that's probably one of the uh, the groups that um, uh, Alex had the most fun illustrating.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and the thing about them is that they don't really care too much for humans. They're more about, um, you know, they're they're more about uh, dominating the world for themselves. Um, so if they end up exterminating humans. A no big deal to them, you know. They don't care that they're originally created by them. Uh, they're they're all about themselves. They they kind of see themselves as the next step in uh, evolution, and um, you know. So they're less about pulling different factions together under their own banner and basically just uh, promoting themselves. Um, well, that's not very nice. Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And um,
1: um, I think that covers most of them, doesn't it?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's um, there's a lot of cool creatures in the setting as well. Um, now, um, which part of which group was um, there was the the mutant leader? I think it was at Uni, um, mm-hmm. uh What was what was the organization that he was part of? Um, well, he's not actually part of an organization. He's the leader. It's kind of a uh, cult, cult Wasat. of personality type type character. Yeah, it, it really is.
1: Um, the idea behind Washtet Uni is, you know, it's made of, it is built from the ruins of a college town. And of course, college towns have all these big, strong buildings, you know, which, you know, present day have got bomb shelters underneath them, you know, and they're connected underground by steam steam tunnels and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it, it makes sense that, uh, that this place would have survived, but more importantly than that, it, you know, because of the the strength of these buildings it also make for you know good bunkers and and that sort of thing so um... he has um... so this mutant lord Chor- Chorog has um... has risen to power and you know the old football stadium um... is now uh, an arena um, where he pits mutants against each other humans versus mutants and he holds these games which draw people to it um, and uh, kind of lines his pockets, um, so he isn't exactly with any particular organization. You know, in, in the beginning, the the samurai in the beginning of the novel, I should say, um, the samurai have um, have sent some people to kind of hang out with him. Everybody's kind of courting him because he's powerful, but he's not. He hasn't really committed to uh, any group in particular.
2: mm-hmm
0: Cool, cool. Yeah, I don't want to give too much away in the terms of spoilers, but that arena does take place in a, or does feature in a in a pivotal scene very early on in this in the book, um, and that was that was kind of a cool uh, classic moment. It's it's usually the kind of thing that ends up in the third act of a film, like in mm-hmm. a lot of post-apocalyptic films. But we kind of ran into that really early on. I thought that was kind of a uh, a cool pace setter for the for the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I really liked about the novel, and this is actually something that um, was kind of fortunate because we were able to talk about the novel before you started writing it, because you were pitching it to me as, you know, hey, can I do this? Right. And and I was and I was looking at the setting and I was looking at the novel and you'd kind of gave me a quick, you know, elevator pitch for the novel and I basically asked you to make one change to your initial pitch and um, uh, how. Significant. It was basically I asked you to change the gender of the main character so that we had a female lead. Mm -hmm. And how much did that change working on the book? Was that something that was was tricky for you, or was that did that kind of just plug into the story very easily?
1: Um, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was a brilliant idea. Um, You know, um, part of it was just in the uh, establishing who the character is that we're writing about. Um, and part of it is is definitely that I am I'm absolutely pro diversity. I think that uh, you know we need to have more f- strong female characters. Um, so it, it wasn't really a tricky thing for me to work with. Um, in fact, it didn't take me long to um, to uh, really embrace the idea of you know we're going to take these traditional gender roles and we're going to kind of flip them on their on their head a little bit, and it's going to work because you know this is post apocalyptic and um you know, we'll we'll just give a very strong, you know, female character here, um who kind of, you know, moves the story along very well.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And her motivation, I, I like the fact that her motivation is really family. I mean it's 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 a um it's 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 not done in like a trite way. She's she's very she's very devoted to her brother, and that's kind of mm-hmm. like the the one person that she absolutely trusts, absolutely, you know, knows has her back, and she has his. And um, in a very very general way, how does how does that relationship uh, start, the or or how does that relationship factor into the journey that she takes?
1: Well, he's. Uh He's a geek, frankly. <laughs> uh, he is the younger brother. She, you know, he always looked up to her, and you know, I mean, she's always been the strong one. He's he's a geek. He, frankly, he's a computer geek. Um, and, and yes, there are still computers around at this time. Um, so,
0: and he he actually does a lot of know, work he, with the uh, with the technology. I mean, it's all about. Her, her, her kind of her game plan at the beginning is she salvages technology from the wild right and then right
1: yeah technology and artifacts and things that will that will make life easier for her and and that she can set all to, to make a profit for her. that's kind of what she does before this this whole thing starts
0: mm-hmm and then uh, and then and then something happens to her brother and and that sparks her journey
1: mm-hmm and so yeah like like i said i mean he's he's always looked up to her she's always been the strong one she's very protective over him but he he is not the type who can really stand up for himself uh in in a world full of brutes he's just not that guy
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so she she has to basically she has to save him
0: mhm yeah so you 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 pointed out the, the idea that this is a heroic journey or a, a heroic story because one of the things that a lot of post-apocalyptic movies or uh, books that I've read tend to, to focus on is not just, you know, it, it, it's, it's not usually about how you affect the society around you because usually it's just about personal survival. It's very similar to a horror novel where the characters are kind of knocked off you know, if you imagine the uh, society as a pyramid, they're kind of knocked off the top and they're trying to survive somewhere close to the bottom third of of that pyramid. And, um, you know, they don't necessarily have ambitions to do more than just get through the day. In mm-hmm. in And usually they form personal ties and those personal ties then, you know, become the focus of the story. In your story, um, the personal ties and the personal trust issues are there throughout the story, but the ultimate conflict affects a larger group of people and Mm -hmm. it's actually and it actually has a much more kind of heroic context in that sense and i really liked that about the book thank you um what what and and that was you said you said that was kind of the foundation of the story to begin with is that something that uh um you think you know is that a theme you think you'd be returning to if you if you return to this setting
1: uh, very likely. Um, the nice thing about the setting is that it kind of exists on a number of levels. Um, there, there's definitely the, uh, the political aspect of people vying for control. Um, at the same time, uh, I've always had an issue with uh, settings where they'll like, create a baseline and then they'll they'll release novels, not naming any names in particular here, but Mm -hmm. they'll release novels. (laughs) And uh, over the course of those novels, the setting will change. Mm -hmm. And then because of that, they'll have to, you know, oh, hey, new edition of the setting. Um, I kind of like the idea of, of, you know, nuclear sunset being a, a little bit static. You know, these groups that are out there, they're, they're going to probably continue to exist well into the future without any huge changes coming along. Um, that doesn't mean that there's no room for heroism or, or things like that. There's all kinds of things that are going to come up. Um,
0: well, it's, it's very similar to comic books in that sense where you have the sense that, that the heroes are making big and important changes, but the you know, everything kind of returns to a certain level of a baseline a familiarity that that you know, because we're reaching out to people with a uh, product that they want to then turn into games where they can do whatever they want with the setting. But right. you know, the the books are there to kind of illustrate and you know create a connection to the setting.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, um, getting back to the question, you know, there are mm-hmm. of other levels this uh, that exist on this setting. You know, there is still that survival element. Um, You know, I mean, this this is well after a nuclear war. Life is not easy, and bad things are going to happen. And you know, just trying to survive is a struggle. You know that that hasn't gone away. You know that's still very much um, an element in this setting. Um, Just because there are big organizations that um, kind of help promote itself, you know, themselves and their members and and things like that, doesn't mean that the average person is going to have it easy. Even even if you're part of those organizations, it's still not going to be easy, you know. Right. So so that's still there, um, and then there's going to be kind of um, you know other storylines that are going to exist within the setting that um, uh, you know things are happening um, that are going to impact uh, other other areas. Uh, the mutant frog army being one of those. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh man, I love the
0: mutant frog army. That I. I um the uh, moment you started. Put t- it on the cover. Yes. <laughs> put on the cover. We got some really cool artwork from Alex on that. Um, yeah, that was one of those. You said, you know, anthropomorphic frogs, and my my mind immediately jumped to an old, really kind of bad 80s uh, post apocalyptic movie called Hell <laughs> Comes to Frogtown. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. <laughs> I don't think I have. Okay. Um, it's. Your your main star is Rowdy Roddy Piper, um, <laughs> the wrestler. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I believe this was before uh, they live. Same guy who was in They Live, right? Yes, yes, okay. yeah. Um, I'm here to <laughs> I'm here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. Um, the main plot of Hell Comes to Frogtown revolved around his um, the fact that he had. Uh, working genitalia so if that <laughs> tells you what kind of I a crazy a
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah the basic premise of the film is that uh, a, a one of the more high-tech but female led societies discovers that he's you know a breeder and so they capture him and they put a lock on his crotch that he has to wear throughout the whole <laughs> movie basically to keep him from wasting his precious you know whatever and the basic idea of the movie is that they're trying to get him from one point of the country to another so that he can help repopulate the earth with humans (laughs) and along the way they get captured uh in in this town of mutant frogs and there's an arena battle and all this crazy stuff um i think you'd get a huge kick out of it
1: i think i probably (laughs) would
0: (laughs) it's very funny um uh but uh, not, not, not what I'd call high quality movie but <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sounds very entertaining yeah, <laughs> though
0: yeah at least it, it is in the hazy memory of, of when I watched it back in the 80s so it, I might watch it now and just be repulsed but <laughs> <laughs> my teenage self thought it was funny mm-hmm. um, but anyway the, uh, the, the the frogs were a really cool thing but we um, one of the things that we did uh, this is this was. One of the first pro, uh, manuscripts that I got um, when I took over Vigilance Press, and <laughs> it's you know I'm talking again about the uh, the actual source book. Mm-hmm. But um, you know when we were developing it, one of the things I noticed, um, and this was ties back into how Vigilance Press did things before I took over, and that was there was a lot of uh, interconnecting um, or. or you know, pointing people to products not necessarily from Vigilance Press, which is a cool way to do it, but I'm, as a gamer, I'm, and as a publisher, I kind of want, you know, as much stuff in one place as possible. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, in your original design, you had basically said, for this thing, you can use this stat from that product or whatever. And I basically said, wouldn't it be cool if we could... Do a bunch of cool original monsters instead of pointing people to other places, and actually include those stats. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think I had to twist your arm a little bit, <laughs> <Or> maybe not. <laughs> but well, it's, uh, it's always fun
1: to sit down and do monsters. Uh, yeah. You know, so uh, as far as that goes, you know, we um, we had some ideas up front. You know, we we wanted to um, make sure that. All the monsters that were in the in the book, the novel, uh, were represented in the in the role playing game product, and then there was some uh, some interesting ideas that were kind of pitched by the uh, artist, which mm-hmm. you know I ran with those because you know you've come up with a very cool creature idea. Um, why why in the world wouldn't there be a place in the world for this thing? You know, right. So it it ended up being uh, kind of a. Kind of a cool thing, and um, a, a nice thing about it is that you know this is something that anybody can take from that book and add to meet mutant future games. So yeah, you know, it was it was, was uh, it was really any, cool. Anything that uh, sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> uh, it, anything that adds to um, the the greater collection of material that game masters can use in a role playing game is a good thing, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I think so too. The um, the thing that uh, that's always fun with working with Alex is that he's really good at spinning ideas or taking a simple idea and drilling down to find details in it. Um, so we've got some really cool pieces of artwork up on the Vigilance Press site. If anybody wants to check out the uh, gallery for um, Pacific Northwest uh, you can go to the website and go to the gallery link and the drop down menu will appear. And just There's a bunch of headings in there, look for the Pacific Northwest one, and uh, you can see a bunch of the artwork that will be appearing in the book. It's not all of the artwork that's in the book, but I think there's about a dozen pictures up there. So, um, which is actually a big change from the previous Nuclear Sunset book, where the art was, um, there was a bit more, it was more sparse, it was a bit more text heavy, and they also focused more on, or they also used a lot of clip art. All of the art in this book is going to be all original. So um, it's one of the things that I like doing as a publisher is is coming is finding new illustrations and illustrators and Alex was a great match for this. He's his his eye, his mm-hmm. eye for military stuff is great.
1: Yeah, he's. Uh, I'm very impressed with the job he's done so far.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So of of the monsters that uh, that we've got in there, which is your favorite one?
1: Um, well. Boy, to be honest with you, I forget what we actually called it. It was the uh, the the tentacled uh, crawfish type.
0: Yes.
2: Box. Yes.
0: <laughs> I I you know it, it if I were if I were in a more thief thieving mood, I would call it the Lobstrosities. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a, that's a reference to a Stephen King novel. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh,
1: the uh, what's it called? The Drawing of the Three.
0: Yeah, it was the, it was Second one of the guns. Yeah, it was one of the gunslinger novels.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, as as far as that goes, um, I'm kind of uh, when it, when it comes to monsters, uh, I really like H.P. Lovecraft. I really like um, you know, Call of Cthulhu. Um, all of these things are kind of inspired by these these weird tentacled things that. Um, you know, as opposed to kind of the um, the more uh, traditional monsters that are that are drawn from um, uh, from fairy tales and things like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so when I'm creating a new monster, a lot of time, a lot of time, I don't I don't really hold back on giving it tentacles or um, making them like weird combinations of animals that just shouldn't exist, or you know. Masses of eyeballs and you know things like that. I, I go for the weird when I'm creating when I'm creating monsters, um, and I think that the, the crawfish with the tentacles kind of fits that pretty well.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a um, it fit right in in a uh, um, uh, mega shark versus sharktopus kind of thing. I mean, it's
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, I really enjoyed um, you know the all of that uh, being able to work on that project. It's the first time that we've done anything like that. uh, Or I've I've done anything like that where I've got two projects that run parallel to each other and feed off of each other. I I guess Mm -hmm. they call it a transmedia project now, but um, you know, it's essentially a uh, one is sort of, they're not really adaptations of each other, but they do feed each other creatively. Mm -hmm. And, and that kind of, Uh, approach something you can usually do when you're doing a licensed project where you're it's a it's a one-directional thing where like you know say if I was going to do a uh, let's let's make it a wish list kind of thing let's say if I was I was doing an adaptation of the Star Wars movies as a role-playing game I'd have a lot of references from Star Wars and I could maybe add some stuff to the mythology but the likelihood of that trickling back up is a lot less though it has happened, then, oh, then... It's happened in a big way with Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably the worst example I could have picked. <laughs> um, like, let's say Firefly, I mean, since that's actually not a, a living franchise, the, right, the idea right. that anything that comes in the, video, in the role-playing games is not necessarily going to feed back up to an existing property, but um, <laughs> in this case, since the two properties were being developed side-by-side, side, it was really easy to um, allow things to influence
1: each other. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of a cool thing. Well, since I was working on both, um, yeah, things definitely fed into each other both ways. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: So, um, assuming the book sells well, because I I, I think it's a great book and I'm really proud of the work we put into it. I think people should check it out and uh, they have, I think, until uh, Sunday the – or – I don't remember if it's the 27th or the 28th, but I believe it's the next day or two people have to, to get the book at, uh, uh, 25% off at, uh, drive through fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, there's their Christmas in July sale going on. Um, and if you buy it there, you get the EPUB, you get the PDF and you get the Mobi, uh, formats. Um, and, uh, That's probably the you know if you want the digital that's probably the easiest way to get all of them in one spot. Um, But if you're if you're on Amazon uh, or or want to go to our CreateSpace link, you can get the print-on-demand stuff. Um, That actually that's worth mentioning for just for a second is
1: that um, you know I mean most people these days have Kindles. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's going to be at least one or two people out there saying, "Hey, I've got a Nook. What about me?" You know.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
1: but uh, I would say that by and large, most people are using Kindle these days. And uh, um, you know, if you go to Amazon, you buy it there. It's gonna be it's gonna be loaded onto your uh, onto your device automatically. It's it's very simple. It's also very simple. Um, to just, you know, to buy it, to buy the files and then load those onto your device. It basically involves very little more than um, than plugging uh, plugging it in. You know, if you're using an actual Kindle,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, that's one thing. It, it, it can be a little bit more difficult with some of the different tablets and stuff using the uh, Kindle app. Um, but the point is that just because you buy the... Um, the, the digital version from Drive Through Fiction. That doesn't mean that you're stuck reading it on your computer screen. Screen. You can absolutely load it onto your Kindle or your electronic device or whatever. Right. And if you don't know how to do it, all you got to do is Google your device and uh, or the uh, the app, um, and it's usually a pretty straightforward process.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm I've got it working on my uh, on my Nook because i'm a nook guy <laughs> <laughs> i actually i like i really like the reflected light because uh, i got the digital paper type where i can where i can it's it's a lot easier on my eyes than staring at at an, yet another computer screen mm-hmm. um it's it, it's just something that uh you know during the day i i'm pretty much in front of my computer for 12
1: hours a day and yeah
0: when i want to <laughs> relax i want <laughs> <I've> got- to <laughs>
1: Kindle like that, you know, the e ink, but then I've also got the the iPad and a phone. Mm -hmm. And to be 100% honest, I do most of our reading on the iPad or the phone. (laughs) But (laughs) uh, there's definitely something to be said for the e ink because it, it really does mimic an actual book.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a very nice reading format, but it's it's the the files are there, and we are definitely taking feedback. So if you have any feedback on the book, on the presentation, on the files, if you have any problems with certain devices, um, contact me through either the Vigilance Press website or through the feedback. Um, uh, I believe there's a feedback uh, button on uh, on drive but if not, just go to the Vigilance Press website, and you can you can send me an email message through that, um, or or hit me up on Facebook or Google Plus. I'm I'm pretty pop I'm pretty public on those two sites, so I'd be happy to, you know, tackle any issues. But um, we've been we've been uh, testing things on on you know in, in the laboratory here uh, as best we can. So um, pretty confident that those that those files are are working in in all those formats and uh, very actually happy to be breaking into yet another kind of publishing this year um was a big year for us because it was our first year publishing a physical book um for uh for stores with tiansha i'm gonna learn how to pronounce it again <laughs> i've been uh, saying it wrong all this time um but uh this is also our first you know, foray into fiction since I took over and you know so we're going in you know this is our first Amazon Kindle book this is our first you know uh, epub book and 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 very excited to get that out there and get that into people's hands um, I think people will really enjoy it if you like that book and you're a gamer and you want to find out more about the setting you can find out a lot more about the legacy of ruin setting or that the nuclear sunset setting in, uh, in in the Pacific Northwest book which will be coming out soon. I can't say exactly when because we are actually going back and adding a little bit of extra artwork to it. Um, and, uh, and then we're going into, you know, we, we've got the layout process. But um, once that is up, I will definitely let everybody know. You can check it out. Uh, keep, keep your eyes on the Vigilance Press Twitter feed. Uh, you can check us out on the Vigilance Press website and I'll always be posting news there and and on and our Twitter feed and, and of course on Facebook and Google Plus. So, um are there any uh particular projects that you have coming up um outside of Nuclear Sunset or Pacific Northwest that you wanted to uh, to point people to? Um
1: well, hmm, good question. Uh there is definitely the Traveler novel, which mm-hmm. it's going to be a little while before that one's released cuz I just got done writing it. Mm-hmm. Um you know that one is currently in the hands of Phil Athens. Um, I'm I'm pretty excited about that one though. I, I think that uh, yeah, me too. Creatively, it allowed me to go in a direction I hadn't been able to to go uh, before, um, which is into space. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, so that one I'm I'm looking forward to, you know, to see, that one seeing the light of day. Um, aside from that, uh, I would say. You know, check out Echoes, Echoes of Olympus. I've had a lot of people who have um, have read that and have really, really enjoyed it. Um, that being my first novel, I was kind of worried about putting it out there and what people would think. But you know, one one person I know, uh, someone I actually know in real life, he he read it. Um, I think more just to kind of you know support this guy I know or whatever, and it came to me when he was done with it. It's like I'm kind of mad that there's not more yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you know I'm I'm not trying to to toot my own horn too much, but uh, I I would really appreciate it if people would give that one a shot and uh, you know leave a review and and that sort of thing. I,
0: oh yeah, so, that's one that's, other thing I did. I, I I've been stressing recently too. To my fans, to everybody, one of the you know I, I get a lot of people sending emails and messages saying how much they love products, and that's great to hear. But one of the best things you can do for an author or a publisher or any creator is review their stuff in public. Like mm-hmm. take a few minutes, you know, uh, and even if it's not like, if even if it's not a one hundred percent glowing, this is the best thing ever review actually, if you sit down and talk about the pros and cons of a project and be honest, um, and, you know, tell, you know, how you came by it and, and things like that doesn't take too long to come up with about three or four paragraphs for a quickie. A review can do so much because people, when they see something has been reviewed multiple times, they take it more seriously than if it's just got like a star rating. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and they're much more interested in reviews.
1: That's absolutely true. um, and, you know, I mean, even going beyond that, um, as somebody who likes to create things, reviews are very helpful because, you know, I mean, it's always fun to, to read where somebody is gushing about the stuff that you've done. But when they're critical of something, you can look at that and, you know, you can, you can consider it and, okay, does this person have a valid point? Should I be more conscious of that in the future? And you can actually help, um, you know, help a writer or a creator become better through time. Through the process of reviews, so I, I think it's a very important and helpful thing that uh, you know that, that readers can do.
0: Yes, so if, you know it, there's there's easy places to review. You can review it on Amazon. You can review it on Drive Through Fiction. You can uh, you know as long as you're a customer who's bought it at one of those locations, you can you can give it a review. One of the things that I've had to Resist the urge on because I like reviewing stuff, but as a publisher, it's often seen as a big no-no. Even when you're promoting something and thinking it's awesome, it's not like like you're, your publishers are not allowed to review stuff at, right. uh, at at drive-through fiction. There's actually you know they'll they'll hit you with the ban hammer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 one of these things where I don't review things as often as I as I want to because as a publisher I have to. To, to refrain from it, but you know reviewing things really does i mean it, it it gives them the feedback that they know that that there's somebody listening that they that they're not uh, performing to an empty room mm-hmm. as much as you know sales are one thing, but but when a book comes off the shelf and comes to life is when somebody reads it and and that's and that's really important for an artist and an author to hear.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, that's absolutely true.
0: So, uh, thank you very much for stopping by, Darren. Um, it was it was it was a really good chat. I'm gonna go ahead and let you go, so you can go out and see if uh, uh, Mad Max, you know, drove over your car. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it was um, it was it was great having you on, and I'd love to have you back uh, again soon. Hopefully, we will be. Uh, if if I can't have you on, I'll definitely announce on the podcast when we get the uh, Pacific Northwest book out. But um, uh, really excited for the, that, those two products to both be out at the same time because I think when people start seeing all the, all the cool stuff that goes back and forth, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be fun
2: for them.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, I definitely would be interested in coming back when we get around to releasing um, the next Nuclear Sunset uh, product. So Cool beans. Uh, like I said, thanks for having me.
0: All right, thanks,
2: Darren, and for everyone listening, as always,
1: stay vigilant.